Speaking of ending things, is a very strange and singular work that seems just about right for a very strange and singular year. That's from Carrie Darling of the Houston Chronicle talking about I'm thinking of ending things. Charlie Coffin's new film currently on Netflix, one of the reviews we're doing this week. Plus, our man Ragstime is back once again. Hope all of you are enjoying that segment as much as I am. We also have a director of a new film on Netflix. He's very interesting and has lots of insights on what's happening, not only with his own film, but also what's happening in the world at large. Mount Rushmore's Strangest Movies, because that's the best way to describe him thinking of ending things. Plus, our Emmys preview. The Emmys takes place this Sunday. I'll give you what I'm looking forward to and uh, what I hope will happen with Jimmy Kimmel doing a very odd conference. Obviously, it's going to be virtual and cameras will be set up everywhere, so who knows how it's going to go, but uh, it'll be fun. Hope all of you are doing great, though. Most importantly, please do subscribe to Cinephile and Apple Podcasts. You can rate and review and appreciate all the support. Uh, the Bad Guy 127 offering a nice review, so I appreciate that. And once again, you can always uh, tweet me as well, uh, at CinephilePod or at Adnan S. Farouk, and appreciate, once again, all those who were uh, supporting us as we go. Let's get weird, shall we? I'm thinking of ending things. A new film from Charlie Kaufman. It's about a woman and a man. That's right, boyfriend and girlfriend, and they're going to visit... Her his parents at a lonely, isolated farmhouse. And as the voiceover tells us early on, um, she's thinking of ending things. That would be Jesse Buckley, the character. That's right. She's not sure about this guy. Maybe they should break up the relationship. And she uses a lot of voiceover. And then Jesse Plemons, the boyfriend, appears to hear her at times. But, oh, what's that? Oh, no, nothing. I'm just talking to myself. She was from Wild Rose. I don't know if you saw that film. But she's uh, funny sympathetic, it's intense, and she's the one who you're just not sure what's going on because you're seeing the movie through her eyes. And it is an awfully strange journey because they go to visit his parents and his parents look young at one second and they leave the room, they come back, they look older and they're calling her by different names and they seem to have different names. And for some reason, you keep seeing some random scenes uh, involving an aged janitor. And you're like, what, what is this all about right now? I don't, I don't get this. So you're not really sure exactly what's happening, right? You've got to, just this confusing trajectory right now but I think what is a big help for me is the fact that I read the book, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, by Ian Reed, and so I know exactly what's happening. And this is that rare example of where I think it is actually beneficial to have read the book before watching the movie. Normally, I'm not a fan of that process. I did it with Shutter Island, and um, I think in some ways it took away from my enjoyment of the film, because rather than uh, battling along with the audience and trying to figure out the jigsaw puzzle, I already knew what the story was all about. But I just, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't resist once I heard that Scorsese and DiCaprio were making an adaptation of Shutter Island. I read the Dennis Lehane book and there we go. And for some people who saw the movie, they said, well, you know, it's too confusing what the actual resolution is. And similarly with I'm Thinking of Ending Things, I've seen a lot of people saying, I don't get it. This doesn't make any sense. It's not like The Usual Suspects, which by the way, I watched again, terrific rewatchables podcast. You should listen to Bill Simmons and Chris Ryan. It was very, very funny. Um, but if you, know, if you watch Usual Suspects, you're like, okay, great. So there's a, who is Kaiser Soze? And then there's an ending. And you're like, okay, cool. Wow, incredible ending. One of the great endings of all time. In the case of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, it's a strange, bizarre movie in which you're trying to put together the jigsaw puzzle of what's happening. And even by the end of it, you're still not entirely sure, judging by what some people are saying. Because like I said, I read the book, so I know exactly what's happening. I know why there's these random scenes involving an aged janitor at a rural high school. Uh, but I think for everybody else, you could be kind of lost. So I'm going to give the film three and a half beliefs. I really enjoyed it. I think it's an, maybe even three and a half, but the hell, three and a half beliefs I'm giving it because I think it's an excellent adaptation of the book. And I think Ian Reid, the Canadian author who we spoke to recently on Cinephile, I totally understand why he would be uh, happy with the book. But I think for everybody else, you're kind of like, what the hell's going on here? But if I think if you can stick with it and you can kind of figure it out, and you know what, maybe if you don't understand what it's about, maybe if you say, okay, I don't really understand the ending, but I like the journey then maybe you can enjoy it. And Jesse Plemons, who's a terrific actor, this guy was in Breaking Bad, he was in The Irishman, kind of like a young Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, he's this very morose boyfriend. And he's got this kind of sadness and despair about him. You're not really sure exactly why he has those feelings. And the parents, I mean, Tony Collette, high-strung, neurotic, David Thewlis, our boy Rags, me and him love him because he's always in Mike Lee movies like Naked. Uh, I think the whole cast is excellent in trying to put together what the hell is going on. Ty Burrow, the Boston Globe, like graphic artist Chris Ware, whose 2019 book, Rusty Brown, features a storyline that uncannily parallels this movie, Kaufman is a meticulous master at capturing the beauty that lies in bleakness. He's our patron saint of desolate lives. Also, A.O. Scott of the New York Times, who's a really good writer, and he's actually mentioned in, uh, in Ankind, because at one point, Charlie Kaufman's taking issue with him. And so A.O. Scott actually laughed in his review. He was like, listen, I read Ankind, did not realize I was mentioned or mocked. And to be honest with you, I don't really care. 
But here's uh, A.O. Scott's review, which I think is quite pertinent. Kaufman's dialogue is larded with passages that sound like quotations, only a few of them attributed. Jake helpfully or pompously informs Lucy when he's quoting Oscar Wilde or David Foster Wallace. But at other moments, you may find yourself tempted to pause the movie, which is streaming on Netflix, so you can Google what you just heard, thus discovering, for example, that Luthi's lengthy, wised-up critique of John Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence is lifted verbatim from Pauline Kael's review of that movie. A visual clue of sorts has been proved by the appearance in an earlier scene of a copy of Kael's collection for keeps. The weird thing is that The Woman Under the Influence review doesn't appear in the book. An annotated version of I'm Thinking of Ending Things might be nice to have, though it might also undermine the sense of knowingness that is both one of the film's minor pleasures and one of its major provocations. Jake, who is defensive about David Foster Wallace and oblivious to the rapiness of the song Baby It's Cold Out song, I do love that song, by the way, is a guy with a clear need to know, explain, and control things. He's proud of how smart he is, though also a little ashamed that he won a medal in school for diligence rather than acumen. When Lucy makes an offhand reference to Mussolini making the trains run on time, Jake is quick to point out that improvements in Italian rail service actually predated the fascist dictatorship. His behavior toward her, his moodiness, his evasive answers to her questions, his passive-aggressive efforts to shut her down is increasingly alarming, even as it is also the most consistently realistic aspect of the film. You've also got references to A Beautiful Mind, Oklahoma, there's a big musical at the end, all of which is to say, if you like Charlie Kaufman films, go on this strange, weird journey inside the kaleidoscope of his mind. It fits in with the kind of movies that he likes to make, which is just to say, you've got a very fractured brain and different perspectives, and like I said, that overall feeling of melancholy and sadness and despair. Anomalisa was like that, even though it was stop-motion puppets. Um, Eternal Sunshine had that sadness about it. And I think it's a well-shot movie. Listen, a lot of it is claustrophobic. A lot of it, you've got Plemons and Buckley in a car driving towards this farmhouse, and you just got snow upon snow and howling wind. But ultimately, I think it's a beautiful film. It's a sad film, and it's definitely a strange film. Three and a half Maple Leafs for me when it comes to I'm thinking of ending things. Joe, have you had a chance to see it? Yeah, I watched it last week, and I, admittedly, I, I, I lost sleep over it. I, I dreamed about it right after I watched it, trying to figure out what happened. And after uh, processing it for the last week, I think ultimately I really like it. I would probably give it three Maple Leafs out of four. And as someone who didn't read the book and didn't know where the story was going, what it was about, it was kind of like... Uh, I guess, you know, almost being accepting the current that's taking you out to to see, you know what I mean, and no longer fighting it. At some point, I just had to give up trying to understand it and enjoy its weirdness. But I think, Adnan, and let me know if you agree, but I think one of the things that made it work for me was that it wasn't strange for the sake of being strange. Each choice that Charlie Coffin made was deliberate, you know what I mean? And I think that that helped with the overall narrative and allowed it to go into all these weird, strange places. Yeah, that's well said. It's not just weird for the sake of being weird. There's a feeling to it. And um, listen, IndieWire, their review, if I'm thinking of ending things, feels like both an act of self-parody for its director and also a radical departure from his previous work. It kind of takes his usual fixations and turns them inside out. From Oscar Wilde, most people are other people and they're only growing more so. We're all pollinating each other with the various things we've picked up along the way. Hopes, memories, and bad movies we've seen are all in the air around us. So I'm with you. It's not just strange for the sake of being strange. It's strange for the purpose, and hopefully you can enjoy that movie as well. We'll get to Rags time and uh, our director in just a second. But first, a quick Emmys preview. I'll tell you what will win, what should win. Outstanding drama series. It's going to be Succession. It should be Succession. It was the best drama I saw all year. Uh, shout out to Better Call Saul. Hopefully one of these days it wins a, a Best Dramatic Series Emmy. It's only got one more season coming, and hopefully, God willing, Ozark doesn't win. Outstanding comedy series. I would be voting for Curb Your Enthusiasm because it's never won. It's not has no chance of winning, though. I think it's going to be Schitt's Creek. My second choice would be The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but Schitt's Creek, quite the story. They're on Vox, which nobody can find, but everybody has been watching the series on Netflix, and they've loved it. So the most recent season, which I don't think a ton of people have seen, is going to win because everyone loves the show so far on Netflix, which they've caught up on. Also, shout out to The Kaminsky Method, which we did review here on Cinephile. Lead actress in a comedy series, I think it's going to be Catherine O'Hara, that great Canadian dame for Schitt's Creek. I got no issue with that, but I do love Rachel Brosnahan in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and uh, the ever-ageless Linda Cardellini in Dead to Me. Lead actor in a comedy series, I'm pushing hard for Rami. I hope it's going to be Rami. I don't think it's going to be. I think it's going to be Eugene Levy. I'm calling a lot of Schitt's Creek. Another Canadian win. Uh, but you can always watch it for the sneaky Michael Douglas, the Kaminsky method. Lead actress in a drama series, I think it's Jennifer Aniston for The Morning Show. Hasn't won an Emmy in a long time. She won one as Rachel for Friends. 
but I would love to see Laura Linney win, and maybe she will win for Ozark. I did think she was the best part of that show. Lead actor in a drama series, I think it's going to be Brian Cox for Succession, but I'd love to see it be Jeremy Strong for Succession. Either one of those two I'm happy with. Please, God, don't tell me they're going to split the vote and Bateman's going to win for Ozark. That'd be the worst-case scenario. Lead actor in a limited series or movie, it's a tough one. I think it's, it's going to be one of Jeremy Irons for Watchmen, Hugh Jackman for Bad Education, and Mark Ruffalo for I Know This Much Is True. I'd probably vote for Ruffalo, but I think it's going to be Jackman. But I'm telling you, Irons was amazing as well. The defense rests. Lead actress in a limited series or movie, I think it's going to be Regina King for Watchmen. I think it should be Regina King for Watchmen. Supporting actor in a drama series, you've got a whole lot of succession. I'd take any of those three if they win. Nicholas Braun, Kieran Culkin, or Matthew McFadden. I'm worried it could be Billy Crudup for the morning show, though. Uh, outstanding supporting actress in a drama series. I think it's going to be Meryl Streep for Big Little Lies, and she's tremendous in the show. But I'd love to see Sarah Snook win for Succession. Obviously, as Shiv, she's tremendous, one of the few female actors that can really hold their own uh, in that Roy family. Supporting actor in a comedy series. I'm pushing hard for Mahershala Ali for Rami. I think it's going to be Dan Levy for Schitt's Creek. I'm telling you, Schitt's Creek's going to get a lot of love. Maybe, though, outside chance, Sterling K. Brown for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Tony Shalhoub is a three-time winner of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I love him. Alan Arkin for The Kaminsky Method. And if I had a second choice behind Mahershala Ali, I'd vote for Andre Brower for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Love Andre Bauer because of Homicide, Life on the Street. Supporting actress in a comedy series, hoping for one of Alex Borstein or Marin Hinkle for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think it'll be Borstein. She'll be a three-time winner, a rare time that I think Schitt's Creek will lose Annie Murphy in this category. Guest actor in a drama series. Yes, I've been all over Ozark, but this is one example where I really did like Jason Bateman. I thought he was fantastic in The Outsider. It was only in one episode, the debut episode, but I'm hoping it's going to be Martin Short for The Morning Show. He was great on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF. Make sure you take a listen Speaking of Canadian legends, Martin Short, one of the all-time greats, and he's excellent on The Morning Show, a rare dramatic turn, playing a pervert. He's a director who's been ousted for years ago, uh, you know, sex with a, a minor, so he's very Roman Polanski-esque, because he's Martin Short. As he said, normally when co comedians play villains, the mistake they make is they don't smile. I made sure to still smile. Villains have fun, too. Guest actor in a comedy series. How about this category? It's going to be one of Brad Pitt for Saturday Night Live, Adam Driver, Saturday Night Live, Eddie Murphy, Saturday Night Live. That's right, Eddie Murphy nominated. First time in 30-plus years. Maybe Fred Willard, though, will win for Modern Family because, obviously, his passing and one of the great comic actors of our era. Those will be the Emmys. Looking forward to the feel of it. Jimmy Kimmel will have it for you on Sunday. Joe, your thoughts on the Emmys, what you're looking forward to? You know, I think now this being a year where Game of Thrones is done, Chernobyl is done, Fleabag is done, as far as Chernobyl goes, I think HBO is filling that sweep and that gap with Watchmen. Um, Regina King is probably a lock. I feel like the Emmys will give Meryl Streep the trophy just so that they can get her up on stage to make that speech. You know what I mean? And uh, just to underscore your point, love Catherine O'Hara. Really liked Schitt's Creek. I think because it was the last season, a uh, small television show that no one really knew about in the first three seasons, they're going to get a lot of love because they won't be back next year. Exactly. Back timing it. It's their last chance to get some love, and I think they're going to be a big winner um, and good for them. I mean, listen, little show that could, and obviously Canadian show, I'm in favor of that. Some entertainment news uh, before we move along to get to our director, Antonio Campos, along with Rags Time in the Mount Rushmore of Strangest Films. A couple of little bits of news here. Uh, Warner Brothers is not sharing Tenet box office data, angering rival studios. $200 million budget, but Warner Brothers isn't exactly saying how much they made. Now, they said they earned $20 million over the long weekend, which is a middling result for a film of its size. But they want initial box office receipts to look as robust as possible. They waited until Sunday for the full box office weekend. And apparently they got some money from the sneak previews, which was nine days before. So it's not exactly shady. It's just unusual for a major studio like Warner Brothers to shield grosses for perhaps the buzziest movie of the year. But of course, Tenet has been the bellwether so far, the first film to see uh, if rising tides will lift all boats. So normal times, executives get involved. They get access to grosses by the hours. Here, Warner Brothers was being a little bit tricky about it. So from what I've seen, it hasn't done that well domestically, but foreign sales have been good. China's doing much better than America when it comes to handling COVID-19. So I think at last check, tenants at $200 million worldwide, uh, just common rule of thumb. you got to double it to actually make a profit. So they're halfway there. They've at least recouped the budget, although you never know how much they're spending in terms of marketing, which is a huge amount for a movie like that as well. SNL returning to its iconic studio, 30 Rockefeller Center, and we'll resume live in-person broadcasting October 3rd. 
46th season coming up. SNL Shutdown in-person studio production back in March when the coronavirus began to ravage New York City. NBC has not released a full schedule of episodes past the October 3rd premiere, though the 2020 presidential election is sure to figure heavily into the show's subject matter. As of early Friday, no host or musical guest had been named. But how about that show? Tenet, they're shielding the grosses, and SNL is coming back. Yeah, I mean, ten- Tenet's the, uh, interesting just because... You know, I, I, like like what you said, all these other studios are using them as a gauge to whether they can release their big budget movies. So now I feel like if Tenet isn't doing well domestically this year, we're not going to get a lot of big bigger budget movies for the rest of 2020. And SNL, I just wonder how funny it's going to be. You know, with football, baseball, basketball, they're feeding in crowd noise. Or Do you think they'll use a laugh track on SNL? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I don't think they'll ever go to that, but you're right. It is going to be an odd situation. We've seen that with sports. Maybe with SNL. I don't know, man. It's um, it's weird, right? So much of comedy is timing. You're right. If you don't use that, like it looks too canned if you use it. If you don't use it, it's look too odd. I don't know. You're right. They may have to do that. That's I hadn't actually thought of that thought, but that's maybe something we have to consider here with live comedy, especially something like SNL. All right. Coming up, director Antonio Campos. You're really going to like him. His new film is called The Devil All the Time. It's streaming now on Netflix and Rags Time with Scott Rogowski and the Mount Rushmore of Strangest Movies. All that more coming up. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. All right, a real pleasure to welcome in here to Cinephile director Antonio Campos. His film is called The Devil All the Time, and it is a terrific film. It is uh, eerie and unsettling. It's an excellent thriller. It's got religious imagery. It's got excellent performances. So first and foremost, Antonio, thank you for the time. I'm wondering about the creation of the film and just the look of it. It's got a lot of style to it. I mean, early on, you can kind of get that sense that this is one of these gothic nightmares that you can really appreciate and delve into. What was it like for you in terms of when you were storyboarding it, looking at the visual look of the film? Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I was looking at a lot of um, noir. I was looking at uh, I was looking at a lot of um, painting by you know because the movie goes from uh, a few goes over a couple di- different decades, right? It's from the '40s to the '60s, so we needed a, a kind of a change in the in the palette, and so we looked at we looked at uh, this painter named Andrew Wyeth, and he really kind of that that sort of more muted, subdued, earthy tone kind of dominated the first part of the story with pops of color, you know, pops of red or whatever that, you know, something that, that might sort of add some life to the frame, but really kind of pulling it back, keeping it very grounded and earthy. And then as the story progressed through the 50s and 60s, we started looking at uh, this photographer named William Eggleston. And Eggleston had this kind of uh, aesthetic where he kind of like leaned into color some kind of like not natural colors like poppy weird pastelli colors uh fabrics and then tone on tone so you started like we started introducing kind of like different sort of strong kind of uh, yellow against another yellow and and then it kind of, and then started le- leaning into the the griminess of of the of the of the world um and so you know it, it's interesting when you didn't go and look so much at like you know, a movie like uh, Night of the Hunter or something, you know, that that's a yeah. kind of classic. Love Mitchum. Great movie. Yeah. Amazing movie. Very expressionistic in its lighting and its style. And we looked more towards um, grounded imagery and then through that tried to naturally bring in the sort of gothic elements as opposed to starting with something expressionistic and then bring it back down to earth, kind of started down to earth and started lean, then finding out where those 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 kind of um, images would just naturally appear. That's funny that you mentioned Night of the Hunter, though, because it's absolutely a film that I referenced as I was watching it. Because again, it's about religious imagery. Yeah. In that case, this tyrannical preacher terrorizing these children. And you're right, there's these images where he's like going up the stairs, and it's like it feels like a childhood nightmare. Um, that that whole concept of like 
religion as like this terrifying element. Like it, it's definitely been in movies. Elmer Gantry, obviously, uh, Berlin Caster. And then there's a rare movie where like, you know, there's a positive religious character like the Apostle, you know, Duval made a movie that was very much, you know, about a firebrand preacher. But for yourself, what was it like when you're dealing with religious imagery, crucifixions and satanic rituals and evil preachers? I mean, are you, are you looking at the exorcist a little bit? How are you trying to kind of delve in and make that stuff fresh? It's kind of, it's funny because like all those movies, stuff like the exorcist horror movies, classic horror movies, um, even stuff, something like Wise Blood is a movie that, that we thought about. Um, but really, it was kind of always looking at it like the movie was a movie about believers. And and we wanted to ground the imagery so that it was very earthly and not like there wasn't anything kind of magical. If there was anything magical, we'd experience through the way that they were looking at it. You know, when 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 they would look at a cross, it was kind of in their eyes, we would experience the magic, but then it would just be a cross, you know? And, 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 um, and the idea of the crucifixion that starts off the movie, uh, you know, the crucified Marine, you know, in some ways it's like, the idea was that this crucified Marine, this real crucifixion, that this guy who is a, a guy of faith, this religious guy sees, that guy, the guy he sees replaces Jesus in his mind. Because right. that's a real thing. That's a thing that he sees, he experienced someone hung up on a cross as a as a sacrifice, and um, and 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 so that's that that replaces it. And so when he looks at a cross, he's not even thinking about the images he's seen in church or in, in books or on painting in paintings. He's thinking about this thing that he experienced. This 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 the atrocity that he experienced and, and and what that guy sacrificed in his service uh, to, to in the war and so um it's that it's kind of like well you know what do these things really look like in real life and let's take the 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 magic away from them and, and then experience experience it sort of in an earthly kind of way yeah i can imagine like on set you're like all right we need more bugs we got like this has been a corpse in a while more bugs oh, yeah. make it a little more disgusting like that is that's such a vile unforgettable image it's grotesque you kind of yeah there was a lot of like more 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 <laughs> more more more, blood, more more bugs more you know more yeah. but one thing that i thought you you actually showed a lot of restraint is kind of like with spielberg waiting to show jaws you wait to unleash your stars in the movie. I mean, it's interesting. Tom Holland doesn't. Tom Holland doesn't show up until about the forty-eight minute mark. Robert Pattinson comes in around the hour mark, and I go, okay, now, now we're really going to get going. And both those guys, we'll talk about each individually. Holland, in particular, obviously, my kids. They saw. I was watching the trailer. I didn't show them the movie, but they still be watching the trailer. Like, oh, the guy from Spider Man. I'm like, yeah, this is a much different look from Tom Holland. I mean, yeah. it, the, the scenes of violence. Uh, he's so uh, tightly coiled, and he's got such rage that he's kind of like, you know wanting to unfurl. I, I could imagine a guy like him, I'm just guessing, he probably was so eager to do a movie like this, which is so different from Peter Parker and Spider-Man. I think Tom was excited by a role that was very different than, than uh, Spider-Man. I mean, the, I, I, and, I, and I think Tom, I know Tom loves that character. I think, but Tom is, you know, Tom's an actor and every actor wants to play different roles. That's why they became actors, to, to, to not play the same part again and again, but to, 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 to embody different people and to, to, to challenge yourself and to see if you can go to certain places. And I think that Tom was so excited and, um, I mean, you know, he was, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a brilliant actor. The guy, it wasn't, there wasn't any sort of like, oh, now we're going to transition. I mean, the guy, he's an amazing actor. He's always been an amazing actor and he's amazing in the Spider-Man movies. Um, he and he brought that same intensity and passion and focus into this character that he brings into all the things he does. And so um, he went about it very methodically. He wanted to learn the accent exactly how the accent might be in West Virginia with a hint, a tinge of you know Southern Ohio. He he wanted to look, you know, he wanted to look more like a boy, um, and so which meant thinning out a little bit but tough and scrappy, you know, and, and, and have that kind of, I mean, some of that is also just attitude. It's not even sort of physicality. It's just this kind of kid who's a survivor and could just kind of, he's, he's going to beat the crap out of you. Even if he's, if, even if you're two feet taller than him, he's just kind of like, he's just that kind of vicious. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, he was he was all in, and, and I think he was really he was really excited to to do that. Um, and then, and you know, Rob is is also an, Rob is an actor who's uh, just kind of like a chameleon at this point. I mean, he changes from so much from one role to another, and I think that comes from you know, Rob's just kind of um, yeah, he just he he kind of he just kind of loves getting into weird headspaces and 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 and, and himself and like. You know, in this film, he, 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 I had given him the script. He was the first one to read the script. And I said, you know, who do you want to play? Like, who, who would you want to play? He said, T-Guard. I said, okay, really? You want to play that guy? He goes, yeah, I, 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 he's, he's, he's fascinating. He's going to be like, he's going to be uh, a very interesting character to get into. And, and, and I, and he, I think he just had a sense that this is going to be a character that he could do a lot with. And, um, and he did. I mean, he 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 really went for something. And the only thing I could do as a director in that case was like, just keep going. You know, just the, the, you can't go too far. Yeah, because some of his characters like that, I could see actors approaching and going too big. And there's moments that you need to do that, obviously, in climax of the film. But like, I think one of his best scenes that's so unsettling is in the car, and he's telling uh, Lenora, you know, have you ever been? Have you ever revealed yourself before God? It was a very clever way of saying he wants yeah. to get her naked. And he's saying, no, you have to reveal yourself. Let's pray together. Like, I thought it was so creepy. And even the way you shot it, like, it wasn't like in close-up. You were shooting it like, you know, a reverse over the shoulder. I mean, it was, that, that kind of a scene to me really stood out when I was watching it. Yeah. And that was the first thing he, that was the first scene he shot. And that was the first time I ever saw Tea Garden. you know. I, did, I hadn't seen Tea Garden. I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard him yet. So it was, uh, it was an amazing thing to to watch that scene unfold and, and to see you know Eliza Eliza Scanlon is so uh, just effortless and luminous and and such an interesting contrast to what Rob was doing you know um, and you see her sort of come under his spell in that scene yeah. Another actor I find really interesting. We're talking to Antonio Campos right now. The Devil All the Time is the film. It's coming on Netflix. Uh, Jason Clark is one of those guys. I just think he's one of these interesting character actors. Like, just when I see his face, I go, this guy's going to make interesting choices. He's probably not going to be on the right side of the law. Uh, like, yeah. early on, I, I thought that scene is so funny when he's telling the guy to have sex with his wife. Just, this, just his delivery, the way he's approaching it. Like, I, just, yeah. I, I, I really like... Tell me a story about working with him, because I seem like he'd be an interesting director. For a director, it's interesting to, to work with a guy like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, the, Jason is like, I remember my first phone call. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think I got a word in my first phone call. It was just like a million <laughs> ideas. It was just like, oh, man, like this, like this. And then when he's got the guy on the ground, it's like that episode of Family Guy when Stewie's being <laughs> And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was making these amazing connections. Um that I would never have thought and, and, but, but they were all kind of like, but I love that. I love, I love when, when you're working with someone and they're just pulling, you know, they're pulling like a little bit of this and a little bit of that and this and, 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 um, and he also was really uh, tactile. He wanted to like, it was about the suit. You know, we, once we figured out like the, the inspiration for that suit was, was, um, was uh, Mickey Rourke and Angel Heart. Oh yeah. Baggy dirty suit that he's like the same thing he wears all the time mm -hmm. um like cinched up with a belt like there's not even like a you know it's not really there's no place for a belt he just cinches it up with a belt and um and 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 so that was a big part of it for him and then the cigars yeah. what the cigars in the book and we had it in the movie at one point we took it out but in the, in, in the book the character refers to these really uh intense cig small cigars as dog dicks and so he had, he was always smoking these dog dicks. And so, yeah, and Jason just, Jason hated it. He, but he, he was like so committed because he knew that Carl loved it. So he, <laughs> he had this cigar in his mouth all the time. And he was miserable. He was like, oh, fuck, the take would be done. Oh. <laughs> then he's like, oh, God, we need, the we need the dog dick, don't we? And I go, yeah, we need the dog dick. And <laughs> Yeah, that, that's funny because that's such a perfect description of those cigars. Like if somebody listed right now, I've just seen the movie, they go, trust me, if you think of a dog dick, that's like what the cigar looks like. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, the Devil All the Time is the film. I, I, I want everyone to go check it out on Netflix. What's up for you, Antonio, right now? How have you been handling this pandemic? I mean, I, I don't know, when did you finish shooting the film? Were you editing during the pandemic? What's it been like for you these last six months? Well, where I am in Santiago, not, not Santiago, sorry, where I'm in Laguna, 
in Chile uh, is where we edited the first cut of the movie. My wife is the editor of the movie, and uh, we edited it here. And then we went back to New York. We finished editing in the city. Um, and uh, no, we were in the middle of sound mixing and color correcting when the, the quarantine started in New York. And we had to we had to go on hiatus. I was working on, I could review VFX and I could do some notes and stuff, but we had to really go down for a while. And then in that period, I was running a writer's room for a TV series that I'm developing. And I was, we also like did this little short film for, for uh, a Netflix series called Homemade that the Lorraine brothers had put together. And so we did that. I was living in a house with a bunch of friends who were also filmmakers and an actor. So we kind of just made the short film together. And um, yeah, so I was, I was very busy. Like I never, I never like, I never had the, like the, the, uh, I never really had downtime. And also I, we have a, we have a two year old. So my, my wife was editing loads of spooky season two in one room for the first half of the day. And then I'd have my son and then she would finish for the day. And then I start my writer's room and she'd take the kid. I mean, it was, it was a very hectic, busy, um, couple months. Right. There was nothing worse than people complaining, like on social media, how bored they were. Cause I'm with you. I'm like, no, I've got four kids, two under four. I've got a bunch of jobs. I'm like, no, no, I, trust me. I'm working. Like it's, 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 just, it's just a different type of work. Right. I was not bored. <laughs> uh, upcoming projects. You mentioned the Netflix, uh, short you guys did. Is there anything else you want to promote that you can look forward to? We can look forward to your work. Devil all the time. Once again, is the film on Netflix. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, there's a staircase, which is this thing I'm, I'm, adapting uh from the documentary um and uh as a, as a limited series and uh there, there's a, a a film that uh, uh a script that a guy named dave kajenic wrote called bones and all um that i'm i'm excited about um dave kajenic is this amazing writer he wrote suspiria for luca guanadino he oh yeah he for, for amc um and this is a very cool uh, horror film. Um, but you know, I mean, at the moment, I'm 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 reading. I'm waiting to see what else comes um, my way in terms of just like inspiration. Um, you know, I it's just the, you know so much of what I think is important as a filmmaker is to consume good stuff and read good books and watch good movies and and also. You know, my, my son loves Miyazaki now, so now I'm watching all these Miyazaki movies with him, and, and he's two he's two years old. Spirited Away, you can't go wrong with Spirited Away, yeah. He loves all these early, he loves My Neighbor Totoro, he loves Kiki, oh, wow. and he loves Ponyo. And so we watch movies oh, yeah, every yeah. day. Yeah, it's amazing. It's one of the best parts of being a dad, and you can pass on your love of cinema, and it's like, it doesn't have to be... Goodfellas, you know, that can wait. There's a lot of other films that you can wait to do that as well. I, I tried to show him The Irishman for a minute. I was like, let's see if he gets into The, the Irishman. I tried to show him The Godfather and The Irishman. <laughs> and just for five minutes, before anything bad happened, I just wanted to see if he was, like, excited by, the, you know, the core yeah. moves or um, the setting or whatever. And he really just, he's like, yeah. no. <laughs> he starts singing in the still of the night, wants to start going to nursing homes, check out the old people. That's what you're hoping for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> the Devil All the Time, terrific film on Netflix. The director is Antonio Campos. He's a very talented guy. And as you can tell, a very generous and warm person as well. Thanks so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the movie. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Get ready, guys and gals. It's time for Rags Time with Scott Rogowski. That's right, boy. Rags Time is back. Rags, how we doing? And then, uh, not great. Not not great today. Tough night. Oh, uh, what happened? Is this uh, your love life is still going well, right? That's all good, but uh, my sleep life is is the problem right now. I'm uh, I'm not getting any lately. A little bout of insomnia, 
this week, last night was particularly bad. By the way, I hate to bring this up while we're recording. And we are recording, right? We are. You know, I think this is like the sixth or seventh racks time. And uh, I'm still waiting on that, that first check. Yeah. Yes. So I looked into that. What they've said to me is that if the numbers grow astronomically, yeah. you're going to get a sizable cut of that. So we're going to have to ask Joe, and he'll crunch the numbers. And if we're seeing the rags jump, then you're going to be, let me say something, well compensated. Now you guarantee, you guarantee, we talked, we talked guarantees and, and a signing bonus, if I recall. 20 k a week is what we my lawyers agreed to. I'm, I'm no, no, no. I said we've got to get twenty k listeners a week. That was what I said. Maybe, uh, and we're not even getting that. that. Oh, true. Right. We're, 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 well, I don't know what's what's struggling more. My sleep patterns or uh, our trends on this podcast, but <laughs> but the sleep pattern. You've told me this before. You've had issues yeah. with sleep, and the issue that you've often had a hyperactive bladder. There's the hyperactive bladder. The hyperactive brain. I can't turn anything off. And it just keeps whirring. All parts of my body are just whirring through the night. Keep me up. Last night, man, I'm telling you, I, I, I tried to get in bed in, early for me, which was like 1 a.m. So I'm like in bed at 1, tossing and turning, listening to the radio, can't fall asleep. I hear some stuff going outside. I check outside. And, you know, the wind's kicking up. Go back in bed. Can't go to another hour. So I like, you know what? This has worked in the past. I'm going to watch some movies maybe. That, that'll put me in the sleep mode. I took some z and I turned on the Criterion Collection. I wanted something black and white, you know? Nothing nothing too colorful okay. for my eyes. Sure, a little film noir to a little put film you to noir. bed. So I, I went on a bit of an adventure, Edna, but I, I want to start by, by backing up earlier in the week when I was uh, watching some other movies, and it kind of leads into last night. So uh, this week, I, I did a 70s dive, and I, 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 I guess I started with Fun with Dick and Jane, 1977, <laughs> George Siegel, Jane Fonda. Because I watched Barbarella the week before. Not to be confused with the Jim Carrey, Taylor Leone remake. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, well, I, okay, so I haven't seen the remake with Jim Carrey and Taylor Leone. But the week before, I'd seen Barbarella, Jane Fonda classic. I had never seen Barbarella, yeah. and I've, it's obviously a big part of pop culture. And, uh, you know, Duran Duran, the band named after Duran Duran, the character. So I watched this thing finally. Yeah, you, you, you played in bar. I remember like when I was a younger man in East Village, Brooklyn, running around. This is the kind of movie that they would play at bars on silent, right? While, while the patrons are getting wasted. And it's kind of like a hipster uh, movie, so to speak, and very campy. Like this is. Have you seen Barbarella? I haven't. Jane Fonda. I know she's a big sex spot in the movie. It's one of those. I mean, I mean she the poster is, is iconic. And, and, and there is some, some semi nude. Not not full half half frontal. I will say half frontal nudity. Okay, so so the bottom half or top half? What do you think? Well, this is why I was asking because normally it's yeah. always top half. But if you go bottom yeah. half, you might get a little more. <laughs> Very rarely are they going <laughs> bottom half only uh, in movies. Robert Alban was a big bottom half guy. Julianne Moore in Shortcuts has got that one scene where she's so upset, and it's just bottom half, no underwear. You're like, what? Well, it's called shortcuts. I mean, that's a shortcut on the skirt. You know, the hem is a little too short. <laughs> there you said so Jane Fonda's looking great, but the movie itself, I don't know. It's it's definitely not a not a quality film. Barbarella. Anyway, I guess my 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 algorithms threw uh, fun with Dick and Jane at me. Another Jane Fonda film with George Siegel, who I loved in Just Shoot Me. The TV show. But he's, he was, of course, a big actor. David Spade. Big actor that hit it big, you know, before I was born, really. So, you know, he was a movie star, I guess, back in the day. I didn't realize he was a leading man, lead opening films in the 70s. Uh, I like George Segal. He's a good, good, you know, got that great voice. I love his voice and his whole demeanor. Good Jewish man. And uh, this movie, Fun with Dick and Jane, it's about the couple who loses their jobs and they have no money and they're suburbanites, they're strivers, and they're trying to maintain the illusions of their uh, their comforts and luxury, and they have to turn to a life of crime to maintain uh, that status quo. And, uh, you know, very madcap, uh, some slapstick and, uh, you know, satire. But I was reading the reviews, and I agree with them. The contemporary reviews from the time, you know, Roger Ebert said it's two movies. You know, one's like a, a sitcom, a TV sitcom, and one's uh, trying to be a really, truly wicked social satire. And it's it, and and the the director and the writer Mordecai Rickler, good Canadian writer, another Canadian. Mordecai Rickler is a classic. I've did the Apprentice of Duty Kravitz, amazing. Yes. So so the Apprentice of Duty Kravitz. I haven't seen that. I got to see that one next. 
So he wrote the book. Very Jewish. Very, very Jewish. Funny. Very Jewish. Him. Montreal Jew. And then um, Ted Kotcheff directed the film. So they he directed both both those movies, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz and uh, and Fallen Dick and Jane. Anyway, I I I watched this thing and it's yeah. I mean, there are a couple of funny scenes, but boy, talk about movies that. Uh, that don't get, you know, you know, we're in this 2020 lens that we have now. We look back on problematic films or problematic TV shows or or, or how how our culture has changed recently. This is this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. This film and how how some of the scenes. I mean, we're talking, you know, there's a there's a piece of dialogue in here uh, that I would like to just repeat. And again, I have to make an absolute disclaimer. I do not use these words in my own life. I do not approve of these words. I will never use this word particularly, but to hear George Siegel spit it out the way he does. And actually, as you'll see, the scene is quite, quite transgressive in a way and progressive for the message it sends, but there is, there is this exchange. So this is George Siegel. He's at the unemployment office and he's trying to signing up for unemployment, right? And the guy in front of him was uh, what was was it was, was it was a man, you know, wearing women's clothing, and uh, and so Siegel, you know, <laughs> Siegel goes up to the the clerk after the after that person's done, and he goes, "Man, I've seen some fruits in my day, but he really takes the cake, huh?" And the, the, the the clerk goes, "Not really." Siegel goes, "Again, disclaimer: I don't use this word." Siegel goes, come on, that's the flamingest faggot I've ever seen. And then the clerk says, this is amazing. The clerk goes, in the first place, he's a transsexual. Not a fruit, not a fag, not even a homosexual. He has the mind, soul, and desires of a woman imprisoned in a man's body. Now, what can I do for you, sir? <laughs> and it's, it's like, to have, to, in 1977, to have that just moment of explanation, I thought that was pretty impressive. And of course, it turns out. Yeah, that that I was going to say that's pretty risque, even for that time. I would think. No. Right, and and to have and, and then the clerk, it turns out, you know, he, he himself is, is a homosexual man because, you know, they, they sort of signal that later on. The clerk is in at the opera where George Siegel has taken a an extra job, playing some kind of like native, and now he's in brown face with a mustache, looking shockingly similar to Geraldo Rivera. I should add. But so so there's there's the brown face and of course you know there's the the the, the black guys are the criminals and there's that scene which is a trope where you know he walks into a bar and it's all black people they all turn to look at him and he kind of backs out slowly you know so there are a lot a lot of you know for the 70s there's racial stuff going on I mean of course this was remade in 2005 they left out that exchange with the clerk about the flamingest <laughs> you know they didn't include that in the uh, 2005 remake with Jim Carrey and Taylor Leone. But even that movie, which I did not see the remake, I think that, that got worse reviews, worse ratings than the original, which tends to happen with these things. So that was my first 70s encounter. And then I, I, I was looking around in movies, and I saw one called Long Weekend, 1978. Are you familiar with this? Uh, Long Weekend? No, I know Weekend, Jean-Luc Godard, but Long Weekend, I don't know. No. There, there's, there's, there's definitely a famous movie called Long Weekend, right? I mean... There's the lost weekend, the long goodbye, the weekend, all these. I couldn't remember what it was, but I, I, I remember like, okay, this is a film I should see. Long weekend. Well, it turns out I was completely wrong. It wasn't what I thought it was. Long weekend, 1978 Australian eco horror film. Yeah, if you thought M Night Shyamalan's The Happening was the first film to explore a sentient mother nature fighting back against mankind, you'd be wrong because in 1978. Colin Eggleston, this Australian writer director, he put out this film, and here's the here's the movie poster to Long Weekend. Their crime was against nature. Nature. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> Their crime was against nature. Nature found them guilty. No, this is a terrible tagline. No, it's it's actually incredible. So it's it's like this couple. They're bickering. There's this terrible, despicable people. They go for a weekend camping trip, and they're just disrespecting nature left and right. You know, he throws his lit cigarette butt in the dry bush. There's, they're, they're throwing their trash everywhere, spraying insecticide. They are like, shh, this guy's just firing a gun indiscriminately into the water. They think it's a shark, but it turns out it's a dugong. And I didn't know what a dugong was. And, and, and this blew my mind. A dugong is like a Australian manatee. 
and and they're incredible looking. I've never seen an animal like this. Google dugong, D-U-G-O-N-G. If loving dugongs is wrong, I don't want to be. I don't want to be right. I don't want to be do right. <laughs> if it's dugong, I don't want to be do right. Uh, but. But this film, long weekend, so so slowly but surely, nature fights back and like, you know, uh, uh, they're getting bit by bugs. Okay. And then like an eagle attacks them, which is crazy. Like a bird just flies in very much like Hitchcock the birds. And then the craziest part is this possum. There's a possum on their picnic table that all of a sudden, you know, jumps on the guy and attacks him. And, and, and this couple, I mean, the woman tries to leave. She gets caught in a spider web. <laughs> It's, it's just they, they both die incredibly crazy deaths and uh nature is ultimately to blame so you kind of don't sympathize with these characters but i you know what it was actually a thrilling it was for for the subject matter it was suspenseful the music was good if you like a horror film and you're eco-minded like myself i would recommend long weekend so this takes us back to last night now this, this is a long rags time i know but last night it's four in the morning now. I turn on my TV and I'm like, you know what? It's at, it's, 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 I'm doing, I'm doing cinephile tomorrow. I want to pay homage to my pal Adnan. So I type in AV into the search box oh. on Criterion, Adnan Virg. And I, I want to see what comes up for AV. And what came up for me first was a film called Michigan Avenue. Now, I didn't know anything about it. Betty Gordon, it says, directing. Okay, I don't know anything about her. But I was very much attracted to the thumbnail, a very alluring thumbnail of what appeared to be two naked women in bed. Ugh. 1974, I figured, okay, great. We're staying in the 70s. I can do a 70s medley review for Rags Time. So I turn away. But what, by the way, what's this ugh you just threw me? <laughs> you are the king of smut. And you, <laughs> you love it. Can we discuss... Can we discuss the text that you sent me that I lost my calling? There was a smut peddler yeah. back in the turn of the century. <laughs> this should be called Smut File, this, this podcast. You, 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 you love- this, is, this, by the way, this is what Rag said to me. This is from the 1950s. Earned to $15,000 a year. Show and distribute movies for adult entertainment to clubs and organizations. Rush $3 for exciting 8 millimeter film and complete details. Special breathtaking movie. Yes, breathtaking. A smut peddler. Torrid, torrid films. This would be you in the 1950s going around from uh, the social clubs and like uh, Knights of Columbus and, you know, <laughs> Elks Lodges. And hey, you guys want to see a dirty movie? Three bucks. <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like the guy in hardcore. Exactly. <laughs> you'd, you'd be pimping out Craney's, Crane and Carpy's films. So, so, so I'm thinking, okay, this is perfect. It's AV brought me to Michigan Avenue, 1970s. Maybe it's some smut. I don't know what I'm getting into. I turn it on. Turns out it's a six-minute short film. The, the, the description for Criterion is, it's Betty Gordon's first film made in collaboration with James Benning. It's both an investigation of the relationship between two women and a formalist study of cinematic syntax. Hmm. Well, it's basically a silent film in extreme slow-mo there are like three scenes where the frame, it goes frame by frame. It's like a frame and then a second later, another frame. I mean, it's the most slow-mo you could possibly get, almost imperceptible. I thought it was just a, I thought it was like a, like a freeze frame I was watching with some kind of ambient music going on, noise going on in the background. It's basically an art film and it was six minutes long. So not much to talk about. There is the final scene, if you could call it a scene, it is these two naked women in bed and boy, this is seventies ad, and there is more bush than a can of bunk pork clam bake. If that's if that's what you're into, <laughs> but uh, but I, I I looked online. I said I want some reviews of Michigan Avenue if I can find some. And of course, there is a, a website, Letterboxd, has Michigan Avenue. And here's some popular reviews about this six minute art film. Right, I really like the sound on this, and it almost goes somewhere interesting, but doesn't. Not a particularly enthralling six minutes, but the still images allowed a viewer to think more heavily about what they're implying. Someone goes, intense and sensual, but not particularly dynamic and too brief. I wanted more. So some people like this movie. I just think to myself, there's probably one person out there, maybe one person in the whole world, 
for who, for them, this is their favorite movie of all time. 1974 is Michigan Avenue, six minutes. Somewhere out there, one person who wakes up every morning, watches Michigan Avenue, makes breakfast, watches it again, maybe on their commute. I mean, it's perfect for Quibi, right? Six minutes. It'd be perfect for Quibi. I, I just love the I, I love this I love the idea of a pretentious film person who what's your favorite movie? Well, it's Betty Gordon's Michigan Avenue. Six minutes of near silence and extreme slow mo, <laughs> which is a cinematic formalist study of cinematic. What the hell does that even mean? A formalist study of cinematic. cinematic? <laughs> you know, I know you're a cinephile, Anna, but but even you wouldn't cotton to this. This is just too much. No. But I love, listen, I feel bad to the insomnia, but Fun with Dick and Jane, The Long Weekend in Michigan, Michigan Avenue, Full Muff. I mean, that is that is some good 70s recaps. Of you. Yeah, yeah. I try. I, I, it's a good decade for movies, and, and there are a lot of hit or misses, but uh, you know, I did what I can. And, and, it, and ultimately, it did get me to fall asleep. Well, you know what really did it was actually The Killers, 1945, Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. David Gardner. I turned that on. That was some good black and white. And uh, finally, about I was actually getting excited, but I just about twenty minutes in, I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. So the killers, I'm going to have to finish the rest of the killers and give you uh, that review next time. I love it. Great stuff as always. Rags time. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Scott Rogowski. Kenny Bunkport. Great shout out. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> you got it. Where's that check? Send that check. There won't be another rags time. <laughs> Rushmore. All right, time now for the Mount Rushmore Strangest Movies. I love the list that producer Joe has cobbled together because uh, some of these movies are just so bizarre. I hadn't thought of them in so long. But Chien uh, Andalou has to get on there, 1929. Louis Benuel said if he were told he had 20 years to live, was asked how he wanted to live them, his reply would be, give me two hours a day of activity. I'll take the other 22 in dreams. Dreams were the nourishment of his films from his earliest days as a surrealist in Paris to his triumphs in his late 70s. His first film written in collaboration with the notorious surrealist artist Salvador Dali was Un Chien Andalou. Neither the title, an Andalusian dog, nor anything else in the film was intended to make sense. It remains the most famous short film ever made, and anyone halfway interested in the cinema sees it sooner or later, usually several times. That is from the review of Roger Ebert. I mean, it is as surreal as it gets. The scene with the eyeball is just so disturbing. I mean, just... Sean DeLue has to make the cut. I know it's a very cinephile-esque pick. That's one of mine on the Rushmore. The image of the moon, by the way, followed by the image of a man with a razor slicing a woman's eye, which was actually a calf's eye, although legend has transformed it into a pig. The hand crawling with ants was followed by a transvestite on a bicycle, a hairy armpit, a severed hand on the sidewalk, a stick poking the hand, a silent movie-style sexual assault, a woman protecting herself with a tennis racket, the would-be rapist pulling the piano with its bizarre load, two apparently living statues in sand from the torso up, and so on. To describe the movie is simply to list its shots since there is no storyline to link them. How about that? C-H-I-E-N-A-N-D-A-L-O-U. Trash Humpers is quite possibly the worst movie I've ever seen. My friend Mark Kalmanichi and I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. Harmony Kareen, the writer of Kids, director of Gummo did it. By the way, Gummo could very easily be on this list as well. But Trash Humpers is not only arguably the worst movie I've ever seen, it's up there with Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Uh, sorry to bother you, it's a pretty bad movie I saw. Whatever the hell that movie was, the uh, Big Lebowski spinoff. Remember I reviewed that earlier this year starring John Turturro with Jesus? That was horrific too. Those are my Mount Rushmore worst movies of all time. But Trash Humpers, the title is not a lie. They're humping trash. It's awful. And it's one of the strangest movies I've ever seen in my life. Honorable mentions, Swiss Army Man, which I've never seen. That's with Daniel Radcliffe. Apparently Paul Dano's in it and one of them is dead and the only way he can move is by farting. There's a ton of flatulence in the movie. Under the Skin I Saw, because Scarlett Johansson's naked in the movie. Again, a movie I don't understand. It's just very strange. Uh, Mandy, I want to give a shout out to Nicolas Cage, who I love, Men at Sundance, The Cheddar Goblins, which Mike Golick Jr. could tell you all about. But I want to include Synecdoche, New York, because we're talking about Charlie Kaufman, and the uh, impetus for this is I'm thinking of ending things. In Synecdoche, New York, I still don't really understand what the hell is happening. As I've said before, I love his work. I've explained why. Mark Simon's happy. I gave an explanation. But Synecdoche, New York, I think is his worst movie. It's just it's just too strange to even understand. It's kind of boring. But if there's one thing that's great, Philip Seymour Hoffman goes to the bathroom, and the guy who's really tall stands over, looks at the stall, goes, I've never seen you shit green before. Actually, no, maybe he says a shit blue, actually. I'm going to have to look this up. I'll never forget, though. I saw actually that at the Toronto International Film Festival with my friend Nick Candiato. 
So in case you're keeping pace right now, the Mount Rushmore Strangest Movies, Unchien Andalou, Trash Humpers, Synecdoche, New York. I've given honorable mentions to Mandy, Sorry Man, Under the Skin. Sorry to bother you. Again, terrible movie. I'll give it an honorable mention. But my last choice is In My Skin, which is involving Antonio Banderas and the wildly creative Pedro Almodovar. I mean, there's like sex changes in this. Like basically this guy, I mean, there's this just warped plastic surgeon who suffers a terrible trauma and to get revenge, captures the guy and turns him into a woman. And at one scene, you're seeing a close-up of a bunch of dildos and he's telling him, you're going to have to use each of these to kind of get up cop to speed. Uh, it is brilliant, but also demented. In the Realm of the Sense is another movie I've mentioned before in which a lover cuts off her uh, lover's genitals. That's also very, very strange. Japanese movie. As you can tell, I've seen a lot of strange movies in my life. I've got four movies in the Rushmore and I've given you five honorable mentions. To recap, though, the actual list is Un Chien Andalou, Trash Humpers, Synecdoche, New York, and in my skin, Joe, what do you got? That's that's pretty good. I but first and foremost, the Jesus rolls was the John Turturro oh, yeah. movie. That's right. That's one of the worst ways I've ever seen. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, the cover is him licking a bowling ball. But mine are uh, uh, Swiss Army Man. I had on my list that uh, I, I mean, I'm a sucker for practical effects. It's so so weird. And Daniel Radcliffe, even though he's playing kind of an inanimate object for a lot of the movie. He's really, really great in it, but I'll put that on my list. Um, I feel like I need to get a David Lynch movie on there, so I'm going to do Eraserhead, which is just bizarre. I, I want to get a Charlie Kaufman movie on, so I'll put on Being John Malkovich. Maybe that's not so strange no that's Joe that's a pretty surreal. weird movie there's a there's a floor at the eight and a half level trust me that's weird yeah no I yeah I mean the, he he he's at the Jersey Turnpike that's how he exits John Malkovich's <laughs> brain um I can't tell and let me know what you think if this movie is weird or just really dark but 2003 old boy I'll, I'll throw that on oh, I'll listen, throw that on. I'll throw I on love that movie I think it's a great movie first and foremost and I do also think it's weird I mean that twist uh, I mean, there's just incestuous stuff involved in there. I mean, it's 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 pretty demented as far as Asian cinema goes. Definitely. And then my, I guess my last one will be 2015, uh, The Lobster with um, Colin Farrell, where if they don't find a mate, they literally turn into animals. So mine are The Lobster, Old Boy, Swiss Army Man, and being uh, Eraserhead being John Malkovich. I guess, you know, that's five. So I'm going to throw the lobster on as my honorable mention. Well, I love the mention of the lobster. The one scene where John C. Riley, they accuse him of masturbating, and he admits to it, and they literally put his hand in a toaster. Like, it's one of the most- oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange. It's, you could say it's strange. And now, how about the early scene where Colin Farrell's being interviewed? They're asking him if you're straight or gay, and he says, well, I, I think he says, what happened to the option for buy? And they tell him, well, the buy is no longer there. And then he has to literally, it's a close up of about 30 seconds where he has to determine what answer he's supposed to give. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's just weird, too. Like, he's picking, um, what he's at, like asking the person he's with what side of the bed they like. Like, everything, just the writing and the direction of, I think Yergos Lanthima directed that. And it's just so bizarre. So bizarre. I want to go watch all these movies now again. I want to watch The Lobster again. I, I, darkly funny. My buddy Ryan Russell and I thought it was a hysterical movie, but you're right. It definitely fits the category of strangest movies. Uh, thank you so much, as always, for checking us in the five. Appreciate all of you. Thank you to our director at Compost. Thank you to Ragstein. Thanks, as always, to Joe. We'll be back next week as we keep it rolling here. We'll recap the Emmys and hopefully some new releases as well. I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.